Azarius Capital Management is an independent investment advisor registered with the Pennsylvania Department of Banking and Securities. This podcast is being provided for information purposes only, and it does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any interest in any fund managed by Azarius. Any such offer or solicitation will be made only by means of a confidential private offering memorandum. Welcome to the third installment of the Azarius Capital Management Uranium Podcast Series. Azarius Capital specializes in identifying turnaround opportunities in the small cap universe, and that focus often leads us to industries poised for a cyclical upturn. We believe uranium represents one of the best opportunities in the market today to experience a powerful cyclical recovery. In our first episode in this uranium series, we provided an overview of supply and demand and made our case for why we expect an impending supply deficit to drive the price of uranium to at least double from current levels. In the second episode, we provided more background on the demand picture and corrected the misperception that nuclear energy is dying and is in fact growing globally at a 1-2% to rate. Additionally, we explained why demand is nearly impervious to recessions. Today, in this third installment, we will dive deeper into the supply side of the equation. I'm Darren Heitman, the founder of Azarius Capital, and I'm joined by my colleague and partner, Chris Gillespie. Hey Chris, how's it going? Pretty good. How you doing? Not bad. Not bad. Ready to talk some uh, uranium supply with you. All right. In our last episode, we covered the demand side, and the demand is actually very visible and very, actually very strong. It's only growing at 1% or 2%, but that's plenty for our thesis to play out. In fact, we can afford to be wrong on the demand side. Because really, this is a, this is a supply story, and it's playing out the way we have uh, seen other commodity cycles play out. The reason we got involved in uranium to begin with is because we saw the price of the commodity fall below the marginal cost of production, and that's what got our interest. And we'll come back to that and talk about marginal costs in greater detail. But because the price of the commodity fell below marginal cost, we've been seeing supply come off. And that's really the whole story. We're seeing supply continue to shrink. And we believe that'll happen until the market's cleared. And then uh, you'll have a supply deficit. Price responds and goes up. And then that will incentivize incremental production and supply will go back up. So before we get into the details of, of those supply dynamics, let's talk a little bit about what uranium is. So, so Chris, what is uranium? Uranium is, is a heavy metal. I think it's about 70 times denser than lead. That gives you an indication of sort of how heavy it is. I think it's somewhere around the 50th most abundant element in the Earth's crust. So it's available around the world uh, to be found. And uh, because of its density, it packs a lot of power in a small uh, package. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's a good point. That's an... A- uh, characteristic we didn't even talk about on the demand side, and we probably should have. The reason nations like to use nuclear power is because of what you just said. The energy efficiency is is terrific, really. So you mentioned it is fairly easy to find around the world. It's it's readily readily available. So as of today, where does most of it come from? Where do what countries are exporting or producing uranium? Yeah, I mean, I, it is readily available, but it's um, not always easy to find, you know, large amounts of it in high concentrations. And so right now, as we look at where the supply comes from, Kazakhstan is the largest producer producer country of uranium. 
in the world, currently producing about 40% of supply. And then after that, Canada is the next largest supplier with about 15 to 20% of supply. I mean, numbers are moving around a little bit here in terms of overall supply, but Canada has two large, very high-grade mines. And then when you get beyond those two large producers, then you get into uh, countries like Australia, which is somewhere around 10% of production, Russia, Namibia, Niger, all, all in the sort of high single-digit production levels, and uh, Uzbekistan is also a, a reasonably sized producer. So as you look at it from a big picture, geopolitically, you might say that 20 to 30% of the production, maybe 25 to 30, is coming from nations that are more friendly to the U.S., like Canada and Australia. And then um, somewhere in the 50% plus range is coming from countries that are more closely aligned with Russia. That'd be sort of Kazakhstan, Russia, and Uzbekistan. And then when you look at Namibia, their production is uh, mostly owned by China, so that's sort of dedicated to China. And then similarly in Niger, there's two mines there that are uh, owned basically by uh, France's uh, power producing company. So that all that supply goes there. Okay, great. Now I'm going to dive in on at least a couple of those countries that you just mentioned. Because Kazakhstan is 40% of the world's production. And um, until a few years ago, that was a state-owned enterprise. But maybe you can walk through what's happened since then. Sure. So yeah, Kazakhstan it's sort of been a big story on the supply side over the past uh, 15 years. From 2005 to 2018, they went from about 9 million pounds of production to 55 million pounds. So that was a big increase in supply. They were, until very recently, we understand they were using uh, Soviet accounting until 2017, 2018. So they didn't even really know their full cost of production. Since then, they have made a move to become more sort of westernized in terms of their accounting and then also in terms of their production. So they're trying to, instead of just produce and flood the market, uh, they're trying to sort of maximize value over volume and try to get more you know, dollars per pound as opposed to just pushing out more pounds, which was sort of the old uh, Soviet-style way of producing. And so they went public last year. So as a result of that, they are also trying to manage more towards towards profitability. And so we're seeing that in the way they're running the company now, they have over the past couple of years made several announcements whereby they were cutting back on supply and cutting back on new projects that they were they were going to do because the price was just too low. And so they started to become a better actor in the overall supply picture for uranium. That's a positive development for the market currently and, and as we look forward. There's still a lot of skepticism regarding the Kazakh's role in the market. I think over the next couple of years, that skepticism or pessimism will prove to be unfounded because not only in real time, their actions support our thesis that they are becoming very economic, rational actors, but also you can read interviews by the CEO that have been done over the last couple of years that they're just words, but they're, his words, along with their the company's actions, really support that they're going to do their part to withhold supply until prices justify incremental production. One other thing on the Kazakhs, the skeptics or the pessimists believe that they have a lot of incremental capacity that they'll 
flood the market with as soon as prices recover into the 40s or maybe even sooner. What's our view in terms of the Kazakh's ability to ramp up production? You know, we think that uh, they, as I mentioned, they've sort of been holding back on on expansion, but um, we think that they certainly could increase production by something around maybe 10 million pounds a year. But, you know, the the production method that they use is the in-situ recovery method, which requires a lot of ongoing drilling and ongoing capex to to, uh, ramp that up. And so, you know, we think that it's unlikely that they're going to be able to ramp that production up much beyond an additional 10 million pounds a year. And in addition, they've, they've ramped up production a lot over the last 15 years and have mined the best stuff first, like all mining companies do. And so as they continue to drill new holes and create new mines, you know, it gets a little bit harder and the costs go up a little bit. So we think, you know, the big Kazakh expansion has happened. There is some debate about their future production. You know, a number of the uh, their supply curves actually show supply starting to go down fairly significantly as you go into the back half of the 2020s. So You know, we're not assuming that, but we're also not assuming any major increase beyond, say, maybe 10 million additional pounds. And again, as I already mentioned, as they continue to pursue value over volume, we think it would make sense as a now publicly traded company to try to maximize the value per pound as opposed to just cranking out pounds. Yeah, that's well stated. And and I'll just put a bow on that by saying that, first of all, our supply estimates include them ramping up once the price recovers into the uh, $45 to $55 range to that 65 million pound level. But even if the skeptics are right and they can go beyond 65 million pounds a year, they can only do that for a few years, which is what you were implying when you talked about their capital needs and also where their productive assets are. So the harder they lean on those productive assets, they could ramp up production maybe aggressively for a few years, but all that does is bring forward production. And in the second half of the 2020s, then they'll just it just shifts the supply deficit to a different year. We don't see any scenario where the Kazakhs can supply the market, let alone oversupply the market, going forward. The other country I wanted to ask you about was China. When you did your world tour and talked about where where production occurred, uh, China was conspicuously missing. And by 2030, we expect China to be the world's largest consumer of uranium. Yet they don't really produce a significant amount domestically. So maybe you could talk about that a little bit. You know, I think China, as they began to ramp up their nuclear program, say about 10 years ago, they sort of had a long-term goal of trying to source, you know, one-third of their uranium needs internally, one-third from purchased foreign assets. So they were going to go out and buy uh, mines in other countries, and then one-third from from the market. And we've seen uh, not a lot of progress on the internal production, as you mentioned, sort of minimal uh, internal uranium production. And, you know, they have bought some assets, as I mentioned before. They have uh, the Ustad mine in Namibia, which they are ramping up, and they bought some other assets uh, in Africa as well. And so they are going to be probably by the end of the decade, you know, the the leading source of demand, certainly the leading source of demand growth over the next 10 years. Now, they have built up a pretty large strategic inventory over the last 10 years as prices were low and as the Chinese frequently do in a lot of commodities. But, um, you know, we think that they're going to want to hold fairly large multiple years worth of inventory strategically since they 
they don't produce any internally. So we think as they continue to ramp up, they're going to continue to be a source of demand on the global market just because they don't have any internally. Yeah, I, I, I think the point of their inventory levels is really important. We will, in the future, do an entire conversation on global inventory because that's also key to our bullish thesis. It's also key to the skeptics who think that there's the world is awash in inventory and China would be one of those sources of inventory. But for today's purposes, because China can't possibly produce all of their uranium from captive sources, we believe strongly that marginal economics will drive the price of uranium. Because we get pushback from, uh, again, a lot of people new to the industry that say, well, China is a communist country. If nuclear is as important to their energy plans as you say, they're not going to produce based on marginal economics. They'll produce whatever uranium that they need at whatever cost it takes to get it out of the ground. So because they don't have domestic supply and they, at least currently, don't have a roadmap to own the assets in Africa or other parts of the world to supply their own captive uranium at regardless of price, we know that they'll be on the market buying. And they'll be buying from commercial producers that will have to get a return on capital for that production. So that's a yeah, shortcut. That's right. A lot goes into that conclusion, but that is the, uh, the high-level conclusion that we've come to. So you mentioned earlier the Kazakhs mine with a process called in-situ recovery, the shorthands ISR. And right. they're not the only ones that do that. That production exists around the world. But I want to tie that into the cost curve. So there, there are two ways to get uranium out of the ground, the one that you mentioned earlier. And then there's the traditional mining where you have to use big yellow equipment to dig it out of the ground. And then you also mentioned earlier in the conversation that there's different grades. You know, so even though uranium isn't that necessarily hard to find, it's hard to find in large quantities that are economic to mine. So as a long-winded uh, introduction to the concept of the cost curve, and the cost curve is really why we established a price target of $65.00. We know that the, or we believe that the world is going to need at least 175 million pounds of primary supply per year, growing to maybe as much as 200 million pounds over the next 10 years of primary supply coming out of the ground, which will be driven by the marginal economics. And the reason we've established a price target in the 60s or above is because at that level of production, the cost curve suggests the producers will need to get at least $65. And that's based on something called the AISC. What does that stand for, Chris? Yeah, uh, all-in sustaining cost. Maybe you could talk to our listeners about that all-in sustaining cost. Does it really capture everything? Yeah, I think that's the goal of it is just to try to capture the cost to mine it on a cash basis. You see a lot of talk about the cash cost because that's sort of something that in the short term companies can produce at that level and, and break even. But over the long term, they have to continue to reinvest capital to sustain production at that level. And so there are additional costs beyond the cash costs. So that's what they're trying to get at when they, when they do that. And then one thing to point out too, a lot of people look at the cost curves. Those cost curves do not include any kind of returns in there. So if you want to add returns on top of the cost curve, that's usually another 10 to $15 a pound. And so when we look at the cost curve in the big picture, if you want to divide it into quartiles, the lowest 25% of mines 
have cost, you know, at $20 a pound or below. So they've been sort of, they haven't really lost money even as the price got down into the low 20s. And then the next quartile, so up to 50% of supply has costs up to $35 a pound. And then when you look at the third quartile, all sustaining costs are sort of 40 to $45 a pound. And then when you get into the, the high end of the cost curve, you're looking at $50 to $60 plus per pound. And so those are the marginal cost miners. And then, as I mentioned before, the costs are, say, 50 to 60. And then if they want to earn a return on that, you got to add another 10 to $15 a pound. So that gets you into a 60 to $75 a pound range for the marginal cost plus a return. And so... That's sort of where we came up with the price target for the uranium commodity because eventually, as Darren mentioned earlier in the call, when we get short of supply, that's going to be the place where the price gets set. And I guess one other thing to mention there, I mentioned that China has a mine in Namibia. It's called the Hustad mine. And just looking at the economics of that mine, it cost them over $2 billion to build it. It's an open pit mine, and those open pit mines usually cost somewhere between one and a half to two, two and a half billion dollars. So that's probably fifteen dollars a pound on the capital side. And then their their cash costs are thirty to thirty five dollars a pound. So that's a cost in the forty five to fifty dollar range. So that's you know that's in the third to fourth quartile. And that's sort of a you know an example of a recently built large mine. So to earn a thirteen percent return, that mine would need a sixty five dollar a pound price for uranium. Yeah, that's perfect. And that's also the last meaningful mine to come online. You know, one other thing on the cost curve. So when you, when you go through the quartiles, I think it's important for our listeners to know also that that fourth quartile only gets you out to the 150 million pound range. So right now, right. there isn't even capacity to produce above 150, maybe 160 million pounds. And so at that level, the AISC is at that range, and uh, it's very steep. So let's talk about, we'll start with the good news, or at least the supply reductions. Because there aren't that many mines around the world, and people understand the resource, we know which mines are going to be depleted over the next, say, three to five years. So there will be mine closures regardless of the price of uranium just because the mines become depleted. What are right. some of the most important ones that we know about that are that will be coming offline? I mentioned before that there are some mines in Niger that are owned by Orano. Those produce about 7 million pounds a year. One of them, the Kamenak mine, is now scheduled to close in 2021. And the other mine, the Somer mine, has similar cost structures. Uh, they, they both have sort of maybe 45 to $50 a pound costs. That one is likely to close probably in 2022. And then sort of the big one out there is Cameco's Cigar Lake mine. That's a world-class mine, about 18 million pounds a year, very high-grade uranium, low cost, cost in the mid to low 30s per pound. That mine is scheduled to come offline and be depleted around 2027 or 2028. And, you know, there is a potential for Cameco to invest more capital in that mine and allow it to continue to produce. But Cameco's CEO has already said that uh, in order for them to do that, they would have already had to start investing in that. So even if they do do that, even if they do get incentivized by prices and contracts to do that, there's going to most likely be a gap in that production. But at this point, it's just scheduled to close. So that would be on the current supply base of 135 million pounds. That would be, what, about a 13% decline in supply just from that one mine. 
Yeah, and in uh, uranium terms, or in terms of operating a nuclear facility, 2027-2028 is very, very soon in terms of planning purposes. We'll do a whole another conversation in another podcast talking about the long-term contracting cycle, but I just want listeners who might have heard that number and think, well, I don't want to be involved with these stocks in the next several years before there's a supply deficit to know that that's not really what we're describing. We're really talking about a supply deficit that's going to occur in the next couple years, and if you look out even beyond the next couple years, it gets extreme. It like a 30% supply deficit in the out years, like when that Cigar Lake goes offline. And it really can't play out that way. Something has to happen. And, and of course, our thesis is what's going to happen is the price of uranium is going to go up. So let's talk about the supply response when the price of uranium goes up, because there are also people that believe that there's enough shut-in capacity that maybe in the 40s, that shut-in capacity comes back online, and that's enough to satisfy the market. But that's not our view. Right. So maybe you could take people through what capacity is likely to come on first. Maybe I should take it back a step and say, last time we talked about demand, demand is in the neighborhood of 200 million pounds a year right now in terms of consumption. Mine supply was scheduled to be about 135 million pounds this year. That's going to be down to 115 million or lower as a result of COVID. But let's use the 135 million. And there's also something called secondary supply. That number is about 35 million pounds this year. And then uh, the third source of supply is, as we talked about earlier, inventories. And so we have a structural shortage. Demand's 200 million. Mine supply and secondary supply are 170 million. The other 30 million is coming from inventory drawdown. So we think there were a lot of inventories that were built up after Fukushima. We think maybe only half of those are going to be for sale. And of that half, we think those are going to be gone by the end of this year. And so that's setting the stage on supply. So then what's going to come back and maybe replace that commercial inventory, that gap that's being filled by commercial inventories right now? First of all, we would assume that Cameco's MacArthur River mine would come back. That's sort of one of the best mines in the world, 18, 19 million pounds a year, very low cost, high grade ore. That would bring back, let's say, 19 million pounds. We think the Paladin mine would, will come back. That's probably another four or five million pounds. We think that Kazakhstan will ramp up to their original production goals. That's another 10 million pounds. And then there's some U.S. suppliers that use the in situ recovery method that is fairly low cost, you know, in the $30, $35 a pound range that could also come back. So when you add all that up, you might get to uh, somewhere around 40 million pounds. But all the while, demand is growing as well. So all that stuff restarting that has shut down would really only get you back to something a little bit short of, of demand still. So there's not all this excess closed supply out there waiting to come back on the market and create a new imbalance. It's going to have to come back on just to try to keep up with demand. As we said, demand's growing 1% to 2% a year. So if you look out to 2022, demand's going to be 206 million pounds. The shortfall then is going to be somewhere in the 40 to 45 million pounds. And so all that 40 needs to come back and we're still going to be short. So I guess that's what we have in terms of the ability of shuttered supply coming back. We don't think it, it has a major impact on the supply-demand imbalance that we see. That was a great overview. And for context on the MacArthur River that's owned by Cameco, operations were suspended, even though it was a very healthy, low-cost mine, as you said, because of market conditions. And Cameco looked at the situation and looked at their forward order book 
and said, we're better off suspending operations here. And they took that offline late 2017 and then subsequently said, we're not going to bring it on until we have long-term contracts at attractive prices in our books. And they've been pretty adamant that those prices have to be in the 40s with escalators. So let's just say something around 50 before they even consider reopening that large mine. Yeah, that's right. I forgot to even mention that. They can reopen, but they're not going to until they can get those contracts up near $50 a pound, as you said. And then once they get that, it's still going to take them a full year to get to full production. So it's going to take them a while to ramp back up, too. So there's going to be a lag on that supply response as well. So if we're right and existing shut-in supply is not going to be enough to supply demand mid-2020s and the second half of the 2020s, and there has to be new mines brought online, who out there could bring on incremental new supply? The big one out there is NextGen's Arrow Mine in Canada, in the very productive Athabasca region of Canada. And that mine, they've done a lot of work on it, and it looks like their uh, projections are that it's going to be like a 25 million pound a year mine with costs probably in the low teens. Looks like a very good project. That looks like the first big supply response that will happen in the upcycle as pricing improves. But again, as we mentioned, Cigar Lake is 18 million pounds a year. And that's scheduled to shut down in 2027-28. If things go well for next gen, they might be able to get online a little bit before that. But um, their mine will be coming on sometime pretty close to when Cigar Lake is closing. And then there's another, you know, there's a number of small U.S. producers, as I mentioned. They have some stuff that they can bring back. Then they have additional projects that might bring in another couple million pounds a year. There are projects out there. It depends on what kind of production they are. As we mentioned, the ISR production is sort of lower upfront cost because you don't have to build a big mine. So that can respond fairly quickly. And then the other projects, like the Next Gen Arrow project, are bigger mines that are going to require a fair amount of upfront capital in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And so the, all those projects that are out there are going to need to sign contracts at good prices to even be able to break ground and, and to be able to finance themselves. So when we look at all the projects around the world and we look at the fact that Cigar Lake is going to close, the, the mines in Niger are likely to close, uh, there's just a natural depletion of the industry. Even if all the good projects that could come on at a price, you know, in the 40 to $50 range come on, but we still don't see that actually really creating a supply surplus either. It, it's going to be tight, according to our models, even with all those projects getting completed. But right. they won't even start until, or at least it's our view, that those projects don't even start until the price is significantly higher. And then we can reassess yeah. our supply and demand model as we go. But as of now, it's very difficult for us to see how the industry meets demand beyond 2025, other yeah. than it coming yeah, from good. inventory. I mean, it has to come from, there's no chance that primary supply plus secondary supply can meet consumption. I mean, it's just math. It just doesn't right. exist. And that's with the shut-in capacity coming back online. So right. new projects have to get started, in our view. Yes. And, uh, you know, the new projects, the open pit mining projects is where you get the big volume increases from. And, uh, you know, those all take two and a half, three years to build. And they take a couple years to permit, too. So these companies in Canada, you know, Fishing and Denison, they're, you know, they're moving the projects forward. They're in various stages of development. And then they move ahead with permitting. But it's a multi-year process. So I think a lot of these mines, even in a best case scenario, will not be producing for at least six or seven years. You know, and I guess we're implying it, but I'm going to say it explicitly. 
it's important for people to understand that the industry has not been investing meaningfully in incremental capacity. So they've been doing the permitting, they've been doing some exploration, but in terms of real capital to replace depleting assets, it just didn't happen. It hasn't happened for close to a decade now. Yeah. There's just no backlog of projects that can come on stream in a few years. They're all basically at the starting line, and so it's going to take maybe in Africa and friendly jurisdictions four or five years if they really put the pedal to the metal and everything goes well to bring on what we would consider a middle-sized project. And all that does is replace some of these other mines that are reaching the end of their lives. And then for a big project in a jurisdiction like Canada, you're looking at eight years, maybe 10 years before you bring on a really big project like NextGen. I mean, I know you said maybe they could come on before Cigar Lake is closed in 27, 28. I, that, that's absolutely best case. And they'd have to start yeah. now. And they aren't yeah. because the price doesn't justify it. Big picture, this industry has been very underinvested for the last seven, eight, ten years. One indicator is in the peak of the last frenzy in 2007, eight, there were upwards of 400 companies that had either the title of uranium in their name or something to do with uranium. And now we're down to something around 40 companies. And also the, the value of a lot of the, uh, the uranium stocks are down somewhere in that neighborhood as well, 85, 90%. Usually a good place to look for industries that are about to rebound when capital has fled the industry for multi-year periods. Yeah, There's no investment. There's no new projects that are really ready to go. And so it's going to take a while. Like you said, it's going to take a while for the supply response. And we think it's going to be needed soon and unable to be provided that quickly. So we think the uranium commodity is going to get allocated by, by price. We think the price should go to where, we, where, where the marginal cost is in the $60 plus range per pound. Yeah, and, and I guess, um, again, it's implied, but we haven't said it explicitly. Our price target is based on the marginal cost of production with a return on capital, which really implies a long-term cost. But we all know when there's a supply deficit in a commodity, you never really stop at marginal cost of production. Just like when there's an oversupply, you don't stop at the marginal cost of production. You get way below it, like we did during this bear market in uranium. This is a supply story, so it definitely deserved a little extra time. And there's probably still more to talk about, but we had this supply thesis in place and it was playing out as we expected and things look great even before COVID. And you already mentioned it earlier in our conversation, but actually COVID has accelerated our supply thesis. So maybe you can run through that quickly. Yeah, sure. So as a result of COVID, Cameco has temporarily closed its Cigar Lake mine. That's a mine in Canada. There's a native population there that they are concerned about because of past problems in the in the 1918 flu pandemic. And so that's an 18 million pound a year mine. It's currently closed indefinitely. So we don't know when that's going to reopen, but probably not until they feel safe about their employee base and about the uh, native population that lives there. In addition, Kazakhstan announced in March that they were suspending a lot of the pre-drilling operations for their ISR mine. So as they go along, they have to keep drilling ahead to allow for future production. That's very manpower intensive. So they stopped that piece because of concerns about the spread of the virus. And so they estimated that that was going to be about a 10 million pound a year reduction in their 2020 supply. And we don't know if that uh, is going to continue beyond uh, June. But based on some of the reports that we hear out of Kazakhstan, it does seem like there is still a, a pretty high concern over there about the coronavirus. That could continue longer than people think. And then Namibia also closed down the mines there for several months as well. So 
Overall, as of now, we're modeling a sort of 20 million pound a year hit to uranium's mine supply for 2020. So going from 135 million pounds to 115 million coming out of a mine. And so that sort of accelerates our inventory depletion stories. Commercial inventory is coming down by maybe 35 million pounds this year. Now we see that coming down by more like 50 to 55 million pounds. And so we think by the end of this year, a lot of the what, what people call mobile inventories, meaning inventories that can be moved around and accessed and used by the utilities, inventories that are for sale, we think that most of those are going to be depleted by the end of the year. And so where are people going to get their uranium going forward? And so the price needs to start going up. And we covered this on the demand side, but it's worth reiterating that COVID does not impact demand directly because uranium is used in baseload electricity generation with nuclear power plants. A recession doesn't cause the owners of those nuclear power plants to shut them down. Not really. They can do things at the margin, but it's not the marginal source of energy during recessions. So they just keep running. So demand is basically unchanged and supply is going to be lower by at least 20 million. And the longer this goes on, the more it impacts supply. So again, this is going to run long, but I think because it is a supply-driven thesis, let's get into secondary supply. There's only three sources of uranium. It comes out of the ground, which is also called primary supply, and that's what we've talked about almost exclusively so far. There's something called secondary supply, and then of course there's inventory that can be worked down, but we think that that's pretty much run its course. But secondary supply is actually a consistent source of supply. And you mentioned earlier it's around 35 million pounds. So if it doesn't come out of the ground, but it's not inventory depletion, what is it? What is secondary supply? Well, it is uh, uranium that, that has previously come out of the ground, I guess, in some ways. There are several different components of what the industry calls secondary supply. One component is sales of leftover Cold War surplus stocks held by the U.S., and Russian governments and militaries. They take weapons-grade uranium and downblend it into uranium that can be used in uh, power plants. That's a small piece. There's also recycled uranium. So we think those two pieces together are maybe about 10 to 12 million pounds a year of fairly consistent supply. And then the bigger piece that is more of a moving target is what the industry calls underfeeding and what I might try to explain a little more easily as re-enriched uranium. So when you first make uranium that is usable in a nuclear reactor, you have to enrich it, and you enrich it by spinning it in a centrifuge. And then once you do that, there's extra stuff that's called depleted tail that's left over. And so those can be put back into your centrifuge and spun a little longer to create more supply. That supply is about 25 million pounds a year, but it used to be maybe closer to 10 or 12 million pounds a year. It increased in the downturn here because it's more economically feasible to put those lower-grade used uranium back into the centrifuges and spin it to create more when demand is low and when the cost of the end product is low. But as the price of that end product increases, the incentive to spin only new uranium in your centrifuge increases. We think that that number, maybe in the 25 million pound a year range, is going to decline here over the next couple of years as the market for the enriched uranium has, has already begun to improve. And so that means in our model, we have sort of secondary supply going from somewhere around 35 million pounds down to somewhere around 20 to 25 million pounds over the next three or four years. So that's kind of like losing a, a pretty big uranium mine also. And that level of secondary supply is consistent with what it used to be when capacity for centrifuges was tighter 
and the price of the fuel was higher. Is that correct? Yes. Let me take a stab at, at my interpretation of it. So because utilities felt like they had plenty of inventory, that the fuel was readily available, demand for enrichment was low. So if you owned these facilities, based on utility demand, you might only operate at, let's say, 70%. And so what the owners of these assets did is they filled up the incremental 30% of what would have been idle capacity by running, generically, I call it scrap. In the industry, they call it tailings, right? So they would right. take they take the scrap at the end of the process, and they'd run it through the centrifuge again. And that might take twice as long. It's not a very efficient way to create fuel, but they didn't care because their assets would be sitting idle otherwise. But that created right. supply. That's why supply went from 20 million pounds from that source up to 35, because otherwise it would have just been idle capacity. So they're squeezing more out of each pound of raw uranium. But they'd rather use their assets to just run the uranium through one because that's extremely efficient and then they can discard of the scrap instead of running through the centrifuge again. So that's kind of the economic reason why from the owners of those assets, it'll make more sense for them to stop selling it that way, stop creating that incremental supply. Our thesis doesn't hinge on that, but it's kind of an interesting dynamic and it will be, like you said, like one really large mine coming offline. Right. You know, we have a lot of other resources to explain secondary supply. That probably also deserves an entire uh, half hour discussion, but I wanted to introduce it because that is an important source of supply and it does complicate the story. But the bottom line here is that consumption is around 200 million pounds. Primary supply is all the way down this year to 115 million pounds. I mean, absurdly low compared to consumption. And the secondary supply is around 35 million this year. But going forward, we expect, even if we normalize primary supply to around 130 million, but then we normalize the secondary supply to something close to 20, 25 million, you still have this 40-ish million pound gap per year. And there's nothing to close that gap except for commercial inventory until the price recovers to bring on what's currently shut-in supply. But hopefully we explained that even after that shut-in supply comes back on the market, it's not going to be enough to meet consumption. So eventually there will have to be a new mine, and that new mine isn't going to get started until the price is much higher past the marginal cost of production. So that is really the heart of our thesis. It's why this podcast is going to run longer than half an hour, but hopefully it was worth it. And we appreciate your interest in our uranium thesis. And thank you, Chris, for all of your hard work in this area and helping our listeners understand the supply dynamics of the uranium market. Pretty exciting stuff. Very exciting. All right. Thanks again, Chris. And I will talk to you soon. And thanks to our listeners for your interest.